I'm Juwita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Living as a disabled person is a political act. Moving through an inaccessible world as a person with a disability is a radical act. Asking, no, demanding that the inaccessible world change to be more disability inclusive is a revolutionary act. Disability activism comes in many forms, from small daily encounters to the takeover of entire buildings. People with disabilities have always been there and will always be there. And we are here to demand more inclusive and a barrier-free society. Disability activism may not always be easy, but it's always worth it. Today, we discuss disability advocacy. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta, joining you from the Accessible Media Studios in Toronto. I'm wearing my hair back in a ponytail. I have a set of black headphones there over the year, and I'm wearing a shirt with three four-quarter length sleeves and a square neck. I think I wore it earlier on in the summer too, and it's red and black with stripes. My guest today is someone I've wanted to have on the show for a really long time, disability activist Lydia XZ Brown. Welcome and hello. Thanks so much for speaking to me today. Hi, Chuita. Thank you so much for having me. They do this on podcasts all the time, so I'm going to be a bit lazy about the introduction, and I'm going to say, hey, Lydia, why don't you tell me a little more about yourself and some of the work that you're involved with? Oh, so just putting it back on me. (laughs) My background for about 15 years has been in advocacy and community organizing, as well as in disability policy work. My work spans a wide range of areas, and I teach in disability studies. I currently work in disability policy in the United States. I focus on economic and finance policy issues. I've previously worked on a range of issues related to healthcare, employment, the criminal legal system, and abuse issues impacting disabled people. And my work has always focused on issues that impact disabled people who live at the margins of the margins. That is disabled people who experience the compounded impact of multiple forms of structural and systemic oppression and domination, particularly disabled people who are queer and trans and disabled people who are negatively racialized. What do you mean by negatively racialized? I mean that people who are impacted by the brunt of racism and white supremacy. You know, when we think about a lot of disability activism, at least traditionally, it was the white man in a wheelchair. What is it in your life that got you thinking about disability as multi-layered identity and as as an intersection with other forms of oppression? It is impossible to do work accountably addressing disability if we presume that disabled people are monolithic and homogenous because disabled people belong to literally every other community and group that exists on the face of this planet. Disabled people live everywhere, we belong to every community, and to attempt to address disability as if we are all identical and experience the same issues, the same concerns, and have the same priorities is to do a great disservice to those of us who are multiply marginalized. And it ignores, in fact, what the global majority of disabled people actually is. Disabled people of color are a global majority, not disabled white people, right? And so when we think about disability as part of the human experience, whether as natural divergence and difference or as aspects of difference that are imputed or are ascribed to people, 
then we have to understand that disability does not exist outside of context. It does not exist somehow in a vacuum or we're at a remove from other conversations of and analyses of power, power differentials, power relations, structures of power, structures of domination and of oppression. And so I think that the framing of the question needs to be changed altogether that, you know, for those of us, especially who live as multiply marginalized disabled people, there is no moment of, oh, I'm a disabled person and I am also this other thing. We were always, right, disabled and queer, disabled and people of color, disabled and. And in some cases, depending on particular circumstance or situation, you know, different aspects of our identity or experience may, may be more salient in a particular interaction. But it is more often the case that the particular combination of disability and other aspects of marginality produce and contribute to the ways in which we experience ableist harm because ableism impacts disabled people differentially as well. And that's something that a very single issue, narrow focus attempt to think about disability fundamentally does not understand. Ableism does not affect us the same way. Disabled people who are heterosexual, cisgender, wealth-privileged white Christians do not face the same ableism as disabled people who are impoverished, especially generationally impoverished, those who are not white, those who come from religious traditions that are not Christianity, especially in the global north, those who are queer or trans, right? Like for so many reasons, the ways in which we experience race, racism, white supremacy, classism, anti-queerness, misogyny are deeply wrapped up with and inform the ways in which we experience ableism and simultaneously experiencing ableism shapes and informs and alters the ways in which we experience the brunt of other forms of oppression as well. In uh, in your bio, you talk about being a transracial, transnational adoptee. Now, when I think about transracial, I actually think about these really, uh, if you'll allow me to say, very disturbing cases of white people claiming to be uh, either indigenous or black in a way to, as a way to sort of move in on some of the the opportunities for those communities. But that's not what you're saying when you say that you're transracial. What has your experience been? This is honestly an angering topic to discuss because the word transracial was originally coined by adoptees to describe our experience and particular positionality politically and geospatially within our lives, our communities, and our families, both of origin and adoptive families. The term transracial only came to be associated with certain white people cosplaying as people of color because of Rachel Dolezal, who used this word intentionally and knowing what it meant because her white family had also adopted black children. She has transracially adopted black siblings. She knew what that word meant, what it signified, the origins of that term, its political positionality, and yet she chose to steal and co-opt it and erase the history of it so thoroughly with the power and influence of whiteness that even some people of color do not know the origins of that word now and associate it only with those kinds of white people pretending to be Black or Native or Asian just for fun, for the appearance of fleeting social capital that disappears because they will never know what it is like to actually live in a negatively racialized body. They won't. And yet it is 
the peak irony of whiteness that white people have even stolen the language that transracial adoptees of color have used for literal decades to describe our experiences. Tell me a little bit about your experience as uh, as an adoptee. Obviously, you were adopted as an infant, so you didn't get a say in your choice to move to the United States. How has your identity as an adoptee shaped your activism, especially your disability activism? Many adoptees are taken from their country, their home of origin as children. And frankly, transracial, transnational adoption, while presented as a global good, is in reality legalized and publicly sanctioned child trafficking. Just that it's allegedly for the purpose of saving or rescuing a child. And there are many, many conversations to be had about the coloniality embedded in what is frankly a global industry of taking children, largely children of color, from global South contexts and placing them largely with white families in global North contexts. There is also a history and a legacy of of ableism in this transnational and often transracial adoption industry, too. And that families that are seeking to adopt are often in the market for what they will describe as a healthy baby, right? And that there can be incentives provided for seeking to adopt a child that is known to have a disability or chronic illness of some kind. And... Simultaneously, I've heard stories of adoptive families feeling deceived or lied to when not informed of a potential adoptive child's disabilities or illnesses. And the reality is that nearly all adoptees experience some form of trauma, which is itself a disability. And so adoption itself, like all forms of family separation, but in particular when it's coupled with the cultural, the, the severing of cultural ties and of ties to ancestral knowledge and community connection that comes with transracial and transnational adoption, there is an added layer of trauma that will be with an adoptee for the rest of their life, no matter what the intentions of the adoptive family are. Do you think, um, you know, there, is there a layer of, we often talk about white saviorism, right? But do you think there's also a degree of, you know, look how charitable we are, we we decided to adopt a child with a disability uh, when really what we had wanted all along was a healthy child. Does, do you think that adoptive children with disabilities have to live with that fear or that stigma or that, you know, that undercurrent that maybe adoptive families are acting out of a charitable impulse, for want of a better phrase? Well, often that is the case. The typical adoption narrative, especially in transracial and transnational adoption, is that the family wanted to help save, nurture an unfortunate child wrecked by circumstance and give them a loving home that they wouldn't have otherwise had, right? Like that's the saviorist narrative. And it reeks of a pity charity narrative, which is common in the ways in which ableism and racism and classism seek to take on a purportedly or superficially at least benign face. And at the same time, those of us who are on the receiving end of it know how patronizing and deceitful and really self-deceiving it often is. There is a big industry around adoption. Um, 
it's as you said, it's it's sold to people as you know the opportunity to do a good thing, and the parents who want to adopt are told that you know this is a chance for you to complete your family uh, while providing a child who has quote unquote been abandoned uh, a loving home. There's a big industry uh, around adoption. It's not just a you know it's not just goodwill and uh, and and good feelings all around. How I mean, you can look into investigative reporting that's been done, right? Yeah, uncovering that many so-called orphanages, the children who are living there don't necessarily have zero living parents. In many cases, children living in orphanages have at least one living parent, right? And so, you know, if someone, especially, I don't know, a rich white Global North volunteer is thinking like, I want to spend a summer or I want to spend a semester volunteering in this orphanage helping children who've lost their parents, you're probably not around children that have lost all of their parents, right? And simultaneously, there's been reporting done over the last couple of decades, including by some adoptees who've done investigative reporting on this, who uncovered stories that are not just isolated incidents of adoptees having had paperwork that's been outright forged or altered in some way to indicate that a child had no living parents and had been abandoned. But in reality, that was not the case and that the child may have been knowingly surrendered by a family, um, but the family might have been induced with false promises or through coercion to give up their child. Or in other cases, the child was functionally taken from the family without the family's consent at all for the child to be removed permanently from the home. They may have thought that the child was going to be sent to school for a time and then right. brought home. That's right. And this is a very genuine fear because in a lot of countries, there is widespread corruption. And I think people don't often factor that in. If you live in the United States or even Canada, you know, people don't really have that the, a sense of how deep-rooted and widespread corruption can be and how much money it can be made through illegal uh, child trafficking practices. But, you know, I, I, I want to say there are families um, in Canada and United States and other places that are well-intentioned and may genuinely want to adopt a child. Uh, you know, say, you know, there might be people with, uh, who want to go back to their countries of origin and adopt a child from there. Do you think there's a way we could, uh, we could handle transnational adoption in a, in a more inclusive, in a more disability-inclusive way and in a less exploitative fashion? I don't think that there's any way to look at the current state of transnational adoption that isn't exploitative on some level. And I would also hesitate to ever use the framing of it being inclusive because I don't know what's inclusive about a system that is about exploiting and severing ties culturally and communally for children. And I don't know that I want to be included in that system as a person who could potentially be a parent, as well as somebody who is a survivor of adoption myself, right? Like, I don't know that that's a system that I want to be included into. But I will say, you know, a few things that you you spoke about call to mind uh, a, a few different issues. One, corruption is also widespread in the United States. We don't like to talk about it, right? It's not, cor corruption looks different in different national, social, cultural contexts. But there is widespread corruption here. There is widespread corruption, I am sure, in Canada as well, right? In the United States, that includes the ways in which adoptive and foster families often treat their children. There have been on there have been exposés published about the whole child rehoming industry, literally called 
rehoming, where a family that has adopted a child, potentially even in a domestic adoption where there is no transnational border crossing at all occurring, decide that they no longer want their child and they rehome their child the way that people talk about rehoming an animal, a, pet. a non-human animal. Yeah. And that's happening within the United States today, right? And that's just within the context of adoption. We talk about corruption in other ways. But another thing that you raise, right, is the question of can adoption ever be done in ways that are ethical? And I would argue that to be accountable and ethical, adoption really requires connection to the community where the child is from. And that's not to say that I think that it could be impossible for a potential adoptive family or some members of an adoptive family to come from a different community than the child that they are adopting. But I think it's extraordinarily difficult to navigate that, especially when there's a power dynamic, for example, a racial power dynamic, which is very common. But I think that when adoption occurs within a community, you know, that's just following a tradition that's been around in many communities for thousands of years, where if someone's family needs help taking care of a child or the birthing parent really is not capable of parenting the child that they've given birth to, that their community takes care of the child. The child may grow up in an aunt's home, whether that aunt is literally a blood relative or called an aunt because of the closeness of the relation without there being a direct blood connection. Yes. You know, the way in which we think about families now, especially living in a Western context, as being, it's so influenced by white colonial ways of thinking about kinship structures, about who should raise a child, about who a child's parent should be, and about what is quote unquote best for a child, that I think we've really gotten away from practices that have always existed, that continue to exist, and that are about the opposite of inculcating or imposing trauma on a child. But adoption as it exists now, especially when the state is involved, especially when borders are involved, and particularly transracial adoption, is just a way of, of inflicting deep and irreversible trauma. Mm -hmm. And pain on someone. And on a whole community. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think um, in the time that we have left, do you think as we sort of navigate the murky waters of, of disability activism in particular, very early in our conversation, you had talked about doing some work around financial policies for people with disabilities. I want to take the, maybe the next little bit of this interview to talk to you about some of your work dealing with um, the financial security and the economic insecurity that's faced by many people with disabilities. What sort of work have you been involved with? Currently, I work in policy at a national nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. I am the director of public policy at the National Disability Institute, and our mission is to promote financial inclusion and economic opportunity for people with disabilities, ranging from ensuring access to economic security for the most impoverished people with disabilities to guaranteeing that disabled people have an opportunity to be able to prop and to be able to have the full range of choices that non-disabled people do or what is often described as financial freedom, right? And, you know, there is a, a wide body of research, much of which NDI itself has conducted and published, demonstrating not only continued economic disparities, 
between disabled people and non-disabled people, as well as those disparities growing exponentially based upon combinations of disability and gender and race, but also just the enormous bur burdens that disabled people actually face in attempting to secure any measure of economic security. We published research, for instance, calculating what we in the community often call the disability tax or the CRIP tax, which is the added costs of living for being disabled that are disability specific that would not exist but for a person being disabled. And we calculated that on average, a disabled person needs to earn 28 to 29% higher in income just to have the same standard of living as a non-disabled person comparatively. And yet disabled people on average have an unemployment rate and a poverty rate that are both about double that of non-disabled people. And that's before disaggregating by race and gender. Yeah, that's really shocking. What, I mean, what other than, you know, dealing with the employment rate needs to happen to address this, this gap, the 28 to 29% more that people with disabilities have to earn to enjoy the same standard of living as a non-disabled person? I mean, I think an obvious solution is close the employment gap, but what else do you think needs to happen? We need to have a robust social safety net, which in the United States, we do not have. We need to ensure that all people have guaranteed access to safe, affordable, accessible housing and to health care and to support necessary to be able to live at home and in communities where they choose to do so. And that means public funding. It means robust public funding. It means training and paying fairly the labor workforce necessary to support people with disabilities, including supporting disabled people in entering that relevant workforce as we are the experts on our own lives and the types of services that we need and what we need in terms of circumstance just to be able to survive and to thrive. And so, you know, you're, you're looking at policy mechanisms around access to income and supplemental income and access to healthcare and reducing administrative burden on disabled people and ensuring that disabled people have access to savings and asset and wealth building instruments in the same way that non-disabled people do. But we're also looking at societally guaranteeing that robust social safety net for every single one of us so that the worst case scenario is that someone simply is not wealthy rather than that somebody is living in destitution. Lydia, I've just got time for one last question. I know uh, at some points in our conversation, it got a little heated, uh, but you know, anger is a good thing. I have nothing against anger, but how does someone do decades of activism, especially disability activism, which can be heart-wrenching, without getting burnt out? You know, I wouldn't think, I wouldn't characterize any of our conversation as being particularly heated or marked by anger. And I think that that's also, uh, unfortunately, a very common way in which the rightful trauma of marginalized people is mischaracterized as being expressed as anger. And anger is certainly a common and rational reaction and feeling, but it is not necessarily present simply when we are discussing angering and traumatizing issues, because that's lived reality. You know, for most of us, we live our entire lives experiencing a constant onslaught of trauma and dismissal and invalidation and being told over and over again that our perspectives are irrelevant or or impossibly compromised 
instead of actually being looked to as experts on our own lived experience and of that of our communities. But for those who are thinking, what do I do to be able to support and sustain myself? I would also argue that that's a misframing. And building on work that's been done by so many disabled and mad and ill thinkers and scholars and activists and organizers, everybody from from Mimi Cook and Mia Mingus and Azad Farafi and Shada Kapai and Tawila Lewis and so many other people, right, is that sustainability and care, which are core and essential to the practice of disability justice itself created by disabled people of color and queer and trans folks, those are practices that can only come about in community. And that doesn't have to be necessarily, and it shouldn't be based on how many friends do you have? How well known are you? What is your platform? But if we're not working to ensure that everybody has access to support in community and through structures to again, guarantee that we all have the basic fundamentals that we need to be able to live decent, comfortable lives with dignity and with choice, then we will all burn out. We are all burned out. There is nobody I know in my life who is not at or past their capacity, who is not struggling, who is not burned out now, has been burned out, or is about to burn out. There is nobody I know who can truthfully say that they are doing well if asked. And so that, to me, is not an indictment on individual people not knowing what tools they need to be able to do activism sustainably, it is an indictment on our society and our culture for actively depriving us of the resources and the support and the care that we need to thrive and punishing us for daring to suggest that we deserve them. Lydia, that was really powerful, but we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Lydia XZ Brown is a disability activist and has a number of amazing initiatives that you can check out online. We'll put the links in the description down below. As I said, we've got a run today, and that was all the time we had for the program. If you have any feedback, write to feedback at ami.ca. You can also give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. You can also leave your permission to play the audio on the program. Find us on Twitter at AMIAudio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI, and you can find me on Twitter at Joita Gupta. Matthew McGurk has been our videographer today. Marco Flaldo is technical producer of the show. Ryan Delahanty is coordinator for podcasts at AMI-audio. And Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. I've been your host, Joita Gupta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>